0: This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and Theory of Art. This is, uh, it's translated by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Venno. This is the second lecture of the eight lectures that are at the back part of the book. I've numbered it, uh, Lecture 6.2, and it is entitled The Sensory Suprasensory in Its Realization Through Art, Part 1 given in Munich on february fifteenth, nineteen eighteen. It was certainly out of a profound overall understanding of the world, and above all out of a deep feeling for art, that Goethe coined the words the one to whom nature begins to reveal her open secret feels an irresistible longing for her worthiest interpreter art close quote. To this we might add, without thereby becoming un-Gertianistic, quote, "...the one to whom art begins to reveal her secret feels an almost insurmountable antipathy toward her best-worthy interpreter, the aesthetic-scientific approach." Close quote. And today I do not intend to present an aesthetic-scientific approach. It seems to me, not only compatible but entirely in accordance with the Gertianistic perspective, to speak about art by describing the experiences we can have of it. Experiences we may have often had, just as we enjoy talking about experiences we have shared with a good friend. With reference to human evolution, we speak of original sin. Today I do not want to enlarge upon whether human life, in its richness insofar as its shadow side is concerned, can be exhausted by speaking of original sin in the singular when considering human life in general. But in connection with artistic feeling and artistic creativity, it seems to me to be, in any case, necessary to speak of two original sins. In fact, it seems to me that one original sin in the realm of artistic creativity and artistic enjoyment consists of imitation, the reproduction of what is merely sense-perceptible. And the other original sin seems to me to be the wish to express, represent, or manifest through art the supersensory. But it then becomes very difficult to approach art, either creatively or experientially, if both the physical and the suprasensory are rejected. Yet this seems to me to be in keeping with a sound human feeling. Whoever wants art to consist only of the sense perceptible will hardly get beyond a refined element of illustration, which may indeed be raised to the level of art, but can never become true art. And we can indeed say, to be satisfied by the merely illustrative element that imitates the physical, or by whatever else is furnished by the sense world alone, belongs to a soul life that has gone somewhat to seed. But a kind of obsession with one's own understanding and reason would be necessary for someone to demand that an idea, something purely spiritual, should be embodied artistically. Expressing a world view through poetry or through pictorial art is not in accord with a cultivated taste. Rather, it corresponds to a state of barbarism, in the human life of feeling art itself however is deeply rooted in life and if it were not rooted in life then through the whole way in which it arises it would not have no justification for existence for in contrast to a purely realistic world view art must exhibit all manner of unreality and into it must play many of life's illusions It is precisely because art is obliged to introduce into life something that from a certain perspective is unreal, that it must in some way or another be deeply rooted in life. Now it may be said that from a certain boundary of feeling, from a lower boundary of feeling up to a different higher boundary of feeling, which admittedly has to first be developed in many people, artistic feeling arises everywhere in life. Even if it does not appear as art itself, this feeling arises when, in the ordinary sense world, what is suprasensory and mysterious somehow makes its presence known. And it arises when what is suprasensory, what is purely thought, what is purely felt, what is purely experienced in spirit, lights up before us in a visible sensory form, not as a symbol or wooden allegory but in a sensory form that it has chosen for itself. Everyone who maintains his soul between the two indicated boundaries of feeling will perceive that even in ordinary life, ordinary sensory input is, so to speak, enchanted. It has within itself something supersensory. Of course, one can say, if someone invites me to enter a room with red walls, I have a certain predisposition that arising in the presence of the red walls is somehow related to artistic perception. If I am led toward red walls, and the man who invited me then steps toward me, I will consider it natural for him to tell me all sorts of things that are valuable to me, things that interest me, and if that is not the case, then I will consider the whole invitation into the red room as a sham, and will leave unsatisfied. If someone receives me in a blue room and talks continually so that I cannot get a word in edgewise, then I will experience the whole situation as highly uncomfortable, and I will tell myself that actually the man has already deceived me through the very color of his room. Innumerable such things arise in life. If a lady wearing a red dress approaches you, it will seem extraordinarily untruthful, if she behaves all too modestly. A lady with curly hair will be perceived as truthful only if she is a bit cheeky. If she is not cheeky, it is disappointing. Of course, things need not be like this in life. Life has the right to ignore such illusions, but there are certain boundaries of feeling within which one perceives things in this manner. Naturally, these things are not to be understood as general rules. Some people will have entirely different perceptions about these things. But nevertheless, it is the case that for every human being this kind of feeling does exist in life so that what one encounters in the sensory world can already be perceived as something that contains, so to speak, a spiritual element, a spiritual situation, a spiritual state, an enchanted spiritual feeling. It can certainly seem as if that which stands before us as a demand of our soul, and which so very often in life can bitterly disappoint us, calls forth the necessity of creating a special sphere of life for such desires that demand satisfaction in human life. And the special sphere of life seems to me to be art. Out of the rest of life it forms just what satisfies that sense which exists within such a boundary of feeling. Now, perhaps one will be able to approach what is experienced through art by attempting to look more deeply into processes of the soul that take place both in artistic creation and in artistic enjoyment. For surely one need only have lived truly with art just a little bit need only have tried to become somewhat intimately conversant with it, to find that the soul processes that have been described are basically the same for the artist as for the one who enjoys art, although in an opposite relationship. The artist experiences in advance what I am trying to describe, so that he first experiences a particular process of soul, which is then replaced by another, Someone enjoying art first experiences what I mean by the second soul process, and only afterward does he experience what came first for the artist. Now, it seems to me that this is why it is so difficult to approach art psychologically, because one hardly dares to step so deeply into the human soul as is necessary to grasp what artistic needs call forth. Indeed, perhaps it is only our own time that lends itself to speak more clearly about artistic needs. For whatever one might think of various recent and current artistic directions of Impressionism, Expressionism, and so forth, and indeed talking about such things sometimes stems from a truly inartistic need, one thing cannot be denied. Through the emergence of these directions from particular depths of soul which lie deep in the unconscious and were never before brought up out of this unconscious, artistic perception and artistic life have now been brought to the surface of consciousness. Of necessity, because of all the talk about Impressionism and Expressionism, there is far more interest for artistic soul processes and the enjoyment of art than there used to be in earlier times when the aesthetic concepts of the learned gentleman were so far removed from what actually lives in art. In recent times, concepts have entered into considerations of art, ideas have entered that in some ways are very close to what contemporary art creates, at least compared to earlier times. The life of the soul is actually so infinitely deeper than one usually supposes. And very few people have an inkling that human beings have a totality of experiences in the depths of their souls, in the subconscious and unconscious, that are rarely discussed in ordinary life. But one must step somewhat more deeply into soul life to find that area between the indicated boundaries of feeling. Our soul life swings like a pendulum between the most diverse conditions which all fall, more or less, nothing I am saying today is meant to be pedantic, into two types. On the one hand, there is something in the depths of the human soul that freely wants to arise out of the soul and that sometimes, though quite unconsciously, torments this soul if the soul is particularly inclined toward the indicated mood. Then it wants to continually discharge itself although it cannot do so, nor should it do so in a healthy human condition, as vision. In reality, our soul life, given the right predisposition for this soul mood, continually, and far more than one would believe, strives to transform itself in the sense of vision. Healthy soul life consists in the fact that this quote will for vision close quote, remains only a striving, that the vision does not actually arise. This striving for vision, which fundamentally exists in the soul of all human beings, can be satisfied when we present the soul with what wants to arise, but should not arise in the healthy soul, namely the unhealthy vision, in an outer impression, in an outer form, in an outer painting or something similar. And the outer painting, the outer form, can then be what enters so as to leave in the depths of the soul in a healthy manner that which actually wants to become vision. We then offer the content of the vision to the soul, so to speak, from outside. And we offer the soul something truly artistic, if we are able to discern through justified visionary striving what form, what image we must offer the soul so that its urge for the visionary is balanced. I believe that many recent considerations that tend in the direction of expressionism are closer to this truth, and that the arguments about it are on the way to discover what I have just said. But they do not go far enough, do not look deeply enough into the soul, and do not get to know this irresistible urge for the visionary. That actually exists in every human soul. But that is only the one aspect. And one can indeed see, if one examines artistic creativity and artistic enjoyment, that there is a type of artwork that originates in and reflects this need of the human soul. But there is another source for artistic works. The source of which I just spoke lies in a particular constitution of the human soul, in its urge, to have what is visionary as freely arising imagination. The other source lies in the fact that, within nature itself, there are enchanted secrets that can only be found if one agrees, without scientific presuppositions which are not required, to sense what the deeper secrets in surrounding nature actually are. These deeper secrets found in surrounding nature do perhaps seem rather paradoxical for today's human consciousness when they are expressed in words. Yet it is precisely this which makes these secrets, starting in our own time, ever more popular. There is something in nature that is not just growing, burgeoning, sprouting life, which naturally fills the healthy soul with joy, but there is, in addition, something in nature that in ordinary life is called death, destruction. In nature, there is something that continually destroys and conquers one life through another. Whoever can sense this will also be able to sense that when he encounters, to choose specifically this excellent example, a natural human form, this human form contains something mysterious in its shape. At any moment, this shape which manifests in outer life is actually killed through a higher life. That is the secret of all life, continually and everywhere. A lower life is killed by a higher life. This human form, which is penetrated by the human soul, by human life, is continually being killed, continually being overcome by this human soul, this human life. And how this happens can be described as follows. The human form, as such, carries within itself something that would be very different if it were entirely self-governed, if it could follow its own life. But this life of its own is just what it cannot follow, because a different, higher life is in it and kills it. The sculptor approaches a human form and feels, even if unconsciously, this mystery, He realizes that every human form wants something that cannot come to expression in the human being, something that is overcome, is killed through a higher life, through soul life. He conjures something out of the human form that is not present in the actual human being, that the human being lacks, that nature hides. Goethe sensed something like this when he spoke of, in quotes, revealed secrets, one can go even further, one can say this secret is the foundation of nature everywhere. Fundamentally, no color, no line, appears in outer nature without something lower being overcome by something higher. It can also be the opposite so that the higher is overcome by the lower, but in all of this, one can release the enchantment and find what was overcome, which then will become artistic creativity. And when one then reaches what has thus been overcome, what is freed from enchantment, and knows how to experience it properly, then it becomes artistic feeling. I would like to express myself even more precisely, specifically on the latter point. In Goethe we have many human truths that have yet to be uncovered but are actually very meaningful. Goethe's theory of the metamorphosis of plants proceeds, for example, from the idea that the petals of a plant are but the transformed leaves, and then goes on to encompass everything in nature, all natural forms. This Goethean theory of metamorphosis, if what is contained within it is extracted through a far more comprehensive knowledge of nature than was possible, in accordance with the age, in Goethe's day, this theory is capable if only nature is revealed through comprehensive observation of becoming something far, far greater. That is to say, in Goethe, this theory of metamorphosis is understandably restricted, but it can be broadened. Now, if we stay with the human form, we might say the following by way of an example. Whoever observes a human skeleton sees through a merely superficial observation that this human skeleton actually consists clearly of two parts. One could go much further, but that would lead too far for today. It consists of the head, which is merely placed atop the skeleton, and of the rest of the skeleton. Whoever has a sense for the transformation of forms, whoever can see how one form leads to another, just as Goethe believed that the green leaf becomes a colored petal, will become aware when he expands this way of observing that the human head is a totality, that the rest of the organism is also a totality, and that the one is a metamorphosis of the other. In a mysterious way, the entire rest of the human being is of such a nature that we can say, if we observe it appropriately, it can be transformed into a human head and the human head is something that contains the entire human organism, only in a more rounded form. But the notable aspect is this. If one has the necessary observational capacity to inwardly transform the human organism so that it becomes altogether head, and if one can transform the human head so that it appears itself to be a human being, then the result will be entirely different in each of these cases. In the one case, when one transforms the head into an entire organism, the result shows us the human being as if ossified, as if constricted, as if it is everywhere driven towards sclerosis. If one allows the remaining human organism to become a head, what results bears little resemblance to an ordinary human being and is reminiscent of a human being only in its basic forms? What results has not ossified into indications of the shoulder blades, but rather wants to become wings, even wants to grow beyond the shoulders and develop over the head from the wings, and then it appears to emanate from the head, and wants to grasp the head in such a way that what ordinarily presents itself as ear in the human form expands and connects to the wings. In short, one perceives something of a spiritual structure. This spirit form rests magically within the human form. It is that which, if one expands what Goethe, through feeling, arrived at in his theory of metamorphosis, it is that which shines into the secrets of human nature, so that through this example one can say, nature is something that actually strives in every detail, not just abstractly, but perceptibly and concretely, to become something very different from what it presents to our senses. Nowhere will one have the feeling, if one thoroughly grasps things through an inner sensitivity, that any form whatsoever, that anything at all in nature, does not have the possibility of becoming something beyond what it is. Such an example so significantly expresses how within nature a life is always overcome, is virtually killed by a higher life. The only reason we do not perceive what we bear within us as this human duality, as a dichotomy in human growth, is that something higher, something suprasensory, unifies and harmonizes these two sides of human nature, in such a way that the ordinary human form arises before us. That is why, not taken outwardly, spatially, but in an intensively internal way, Nature appears so magical, so mysterious. For in every part of itself, it actually wants more, unendingly more than it can offer. What it separates into, what it organizes, is composed in such a way that a higher life swallows a lower life, which is thus allowed to achieve only a limited development. Anyone who guides his feeling in the direction given here will find that this revealed secret, this enchantment that permeates all nature, is like the inner striving for what is visionary. But now it acts from the outside, to inspire the human being to go beyond nature, to set to work in a given place, to extract a particular detail from the whole, and from there to let stream out what nature wants in a particular place, a part that can become a whole, but in nature is not a whole. Perhaps the following may be mentioned here. In the construction of the building of the Anthroposophical Society in Dornach, near Basel, the attempt was made to realize sculpturally what I have just indicated. The attempt was made to create a sculptural group out of wood, representing, I would like to say, a typical human being. But representing this typical human being in such a way that what is usually merely a tendency, kept in check by a higher life, is represented so that the form momentarily becomes gesture, and this gesture is then brought once more to rest. The attempt was made here to awaken sculpturally what is kept in check in the ordinary human form, not the gesture that comes from the soul, but the gesture that is killed in the soul and kept in check by the life of the soul, and then to let it come to rest again. The attempt was made to bring the quiet surfaces of the human organism into movement gesturally, and then to bring them to rest again. This allowed quite naturally for the perception of the tendency that every human being has, and that is of course kept in check by a higher life, for the asymmetry that is present in every human being no human being is formed on the left exactly as he is on the right to emerge more strongly. But having once allowed it to emerge more strongly, having, so to speak, dissolved what is held together in a higher life, one must then connect it with humor on a different higher stage, for then it is necessary to reconcile what approaches one naturalistically from outside. It becomes necessary to reconcile this crime against naturalism artistically, to make the asymmetry conspicuous, to bring various things into gesture, and then to allow them to be brought to rest again. We then had to atone for this inner crime by, on the other hand, showing the triumph that happens when the human head metamorphoses into a dark, nightmarish form, That, however, is then overcome by the representative of humanity, the form placed beneath his feet, so that it can be perceived as a member, a part, of what represents the human being. The other form we had to create for this sculpture represents what feeling demands, when, besides the head, the remaining human form becomes so mighty, as it is indeed in life, though kept in check, by a higher life that what is usually held back and stunted is overgrown for example what is attached at the shoulder blades and is set unconsciously into the human form as a luciferic element of sorts an element wanting to escape the human form if everything set into the human form that erupts as urges and desires becomes form rather than being overcome by a higher life the life of understanding or reason, which is otherwise formed in the human head, if all of this manifests itself, then one has the possibility of disenchanting nature, of wresting from nature her revealed secret, by taking what nature has killed off piecemeal in order to create a whole, and presenting it again in parts so that the observer must carry out in his soul what nature has otherwise carried out for him. Nature has done all of this. Nature has really composed the human being in such a way that the various individual parts are assembled into a, an harmonious whole. By dissolving what is enchanted within nature, one dissolves nature's supra-sensory forces. The occasion does not arise in either a wooden allegorical or in a reasonably creative manner to search for something as idea, as something thought up, as a merely supra-sensory spiritual presence underlying nature. Rather, one simply inquires of nature, how would you grow in your individual parts if your growth were not interrupted through a higher life? One manages to release the suprasensory out of the sensory Whereas it is usually enchanted within the sensory, one actually manages to be supernaturally natural. I believe that the longing of our era to give structure to these sorts of secrets of nature, this sort of sensory, supra sensory element, can be perceived in all of these different tendencies and strivings, which were begun but got stuck in the beginning and are designated as impressionism. For one has the feeling that what happens in art and in artistic creativity and enjoyment ought to be further elevated in our consciousness today than it was in earlier eras of art. There has always been the striving for what takes place there, namely that the repressed vision is satisfied or that something is placed in front of nature that wants to imitate its processes. For in fact these are the two sources of all art. Let us return to the time of Raphael. In Raphael's time these things were of course striven for quite differently than Cezanne or Hodler are attempting in our day. But, more or less consciously, this striving that is designated in art through these two streams has always been present. It is only that in earlier times it was considered completely, fundamentally original if the artist himself did not know that in his soul Something spiritually unconscious approached nature and freed what was enchanted within nature when he sought for it in the sensory-suprasensory. Thus, when one stands before a work of art by Raphael, one has the feeling that if one has any inclination to interpret what otherwise remains dark in the unconscious depths and does not need to be expressed, one makes an agreement with the artwork, and thus also with Raphael. But this agreement might give one the feeling, as mentioned, it need not be expressed, not even by one's own soul, that in an earlier life one had been together with Raphael and had experienced all sorts of things from him that had lodged themselves deeply in the soul. And the agreement one had reached with Raphael's soul centuries ago has become quite unconscious then when one stands before Raphael's works, it arises again. One has the feeling that something agreed upon long ago between one's own soul and Raphael's soul is present. One does not have this feeling in the presence of more recent artists. The more recent artist leads one spiritually, so to speak, into his chamber, and what is agreed upon is close to human consciousness. The agreement is made with him in the present. Because this longing, this necessity of time has now arisen, the process of the upwelling imagination, which is actually a repressed vision, allows itself to be satisfied artistically in our time. And although today it is still somewhat elementary, a real dissolving of what is otherwise unified in nature arises before us. Yes, a dissolving and then again a joining together, the imitation of a natural process. What endless meaning was achieved by the efforts of recent painters to study the different colors and the light in its different nuances, to discover that fundamentally every effect of light, every nuance of color, wants to be more than it can be when it is forced into a whole, when it is killed through a higher life. So much has been attempted, beginning with this feeling, in order to awaken the life of light itself, to treat light in such a way that what generally remains enchanted within it, when it must serve the formation of ordinary natural processes and natural events, is released from enchantment. We are still mostly just at the beginning with these things. Nevertheless, from these beginnings, which correspond to a justified yearning, we will proceed and likely be able to experience how something will become a secret purely artistically and then become a solved secret. This sounds, when spoken aloud, somewhat banal, but many things that sound banal contain secrets. We must only get close to the secret, especially the feeling for the secret. What I mean here is the answer to the question, why can one not actually paint fire or draw air? It is quite clear that, in reality, one cannot paint fire. One would need to have an unpainterly sense, if one wanted to hold fast the glittering, glowing life that can only be held through light. No one should desire to paint lightning, and even less so to draw air. But on the other hand, one has to admit that everything contained in light hides something that strives to become like fire, to become something immediately like it, so that it says something, so that it makes an impression that wells up out of the light, and also out of every single color nuance, just as human speech wells up out of the human organism. Every effect of light wants to tell us something and every effect of light wants to tell the other effect of light something. In every effect of light rests a life that is overcome, killed, through larger connections. If we turn our feeling in this direction, we discover in this way the feeling for color, what the color says, which is what was started in the time of plain air painting. Readers aside, plain, P L E I N hyphen air, possibly plain air, And of readers aside. If we discover this secret about color, then this feeling expands, and we find that basically what I have just now said is applicable. But not for all colors. Colors speak in different ways. Whereas the lighter colors, the reds and yellows, actually attack you, say a great deal to you, The bluish colors are something that provides the painting with a transition into form. Through blue we already come into form, in particular into the form-fashioning soul. Artists were on the path toward making such discoveries, but often remained stuck halfway along the path. Many a painting by Sinak therefore seems so unsatisfactory, even though in other ways it can be quite satisfying because blue is handled in just the same way as, let us say, yellow or red, without there being the consciousness that the blue spot of color placed next to the yellow has a totally different value than the red next to the yellow. This seems to be something trivial for anyone who can feel colors, but in a deeper sense we are only starting on the path to the discovery of such secrets, blue and violet these are colors that definitely lead the painting from the expressive into the inner perspective. And it is definitely possible that merely through the use of blue next to other colors we could bring about a wonderful perspective in a painting without any sort of drawing. This is how we progress. We come to the realization that drawing can really be what we would call the work of color. If we succeed in transforming the color into movement so that we see the drawing rather mysteriously under the guidance of the color, we will notice that this is particularly possible with blue, less so with yellow or red, because these are not suited to being led in such a way that inner movement arises, that there is movement from one point to another. If we want to create a figure that moves inwardly, that flies, for example, and because of this inner mobility becomes inwardly now smaller, now larger, then we will find ourselves compelled, not by starting with some sort of principle of reason or some kind of learned aesthetic, which is never justified, but by starting from the most elemental feeling to employ nuances of blue and to lead these over into movement. We will notice that in principle a line can only appear, that drawing only arises, that something figurative can only appear if we continue what we started when we allowed the blue tints to be set into motion. For every time we move from the painterly, the coloristic, into the figurative, the form, we will transform what is sensory into the basic color of the supersensory. In transitioning to lighter colors, through blue and from there arriving inwardly at drawing, we will have in these lighter colors the transition to the sensory-suprasensory, which contains the suprasensory in, so to speak, a narrower tone. For color always wants to say something. Color always has a soul that is suprasensory. And we will find that the more we are involved in drawing the more do we become involved in the abstract suprasensory, which, however, must fashion itself in a sensory form because it appears in the sensory world. Today I can only give indications for these things, but it is clear that in this way we can perceive how, in a specific area, color and drawing can be applied by artistic creativity, in such a way that the application contains what I would like to express in the following words. Nature holds it under enchantment, and we disenchant what is hidden in the sensory through a supra-sensory element that has been killed by a higher life. If we look at sculpture, we will find there are always two interpretations for the surfaces, as well as for the lines. But I would like to speak about only one interpretation. Firstly, healthy feeling does not allow the sculpted surface to remain as it is in the natural human form, for there it is killed off by the human soul, by human life, by something higher. We must look for the life of the surface itself by first spiritually removing the life or the soul incarnated in the human form. We must look for the soul of the form itself. And then we notice how we find it when we do not allow the surface to have single curves, but rather add another curve to the single curve so that we have a double curve. We notice how we can guide the form so that it speaks. And we notice that deep in our unconscious, in contrast to what I have dealt with now, In a more analytical sense, there is a synesthetic sense. Sensory nature does indeed disintegrate into the pure sensory suprasensory, which is only overcome in higher stages of life. Within the indicated soul boundaries, we have an elementary urge to release nature from enchantment in this way, so as to see how the sensory suprasensory dwells within it in various forms. Like crystals in a Druze, and how because they are in their Druze, their surfaces are truncated. Readers aside, Druze is spelled D R U S E. End of readers aside. But the human being also has within himself, sometimes very strongly, especially when this division, this analysis, this release of nature into the sensory, supersensory, is intensively present in his unconscious. That capacity, which I would call synesthesia, a synesthetic sense. What is strange is that whoever observes the human being properly will discover that we use our senses in a very one-sided way. When we see colors, forms, effects of light with the eye, we develop the eye in a one-sided way. In the eye, EYE, there is always something like a mysterious sense of touch. The eye always feels while it sees. In ordinary life, however, this is suppressed. But because the eye forms itself in a one-sided way, we always have the urge, if we can sense it, to experience how what develops in the eye as a sense of touch, a sense of self, a sense of movement, which arises when we move and feel how our limbs move through space, is suppressed. That element of the other senses, which is suppressed in the eye, we experience as stimulated, although it remains standing still, in the other person when we look. And what is thus stimulated in the observed person, but is suppressed by the one-sidedness of the eye, that is what the sculptor remodels again. In fact, the sculptor fashions forms that the eye does indeed see, but so weakly that this weak seeing remains entirely unconscious. The sculptor serves a direct transmission of the sense of touch into the sense of sight. That is why the sculptor is compelled, or at least must attempt, to release the quiet form, which is otherwise the only object of the one-sided eye, into a gesture that always prompts imitation by another gesture, and this gesture, which one has now released from enchantment, must be brought to rest again. For fundamentally, what is animated in one direction and then brought to rest in the other, what is active in us as soul process, whenever we are active artistically or are appreciating art, is on the one hand always like what happens when the human being breathes in and out. This process raised up out of the human soul makes a grotesque impression, although it calls forth, on the other hand, a feeling of the great infinities that are enchanted within nature. The development of art, and this is demonstrated by certain beginnings that have been with us for decades and are especially prevalent now, certainly moves in the direction of unlocking such mysteries and of really forming these things more or less unconsciously. One need not talk about these things a great deal, for they will take form more and more through art. For example, there will come a time when we will sense the following. Indeed, in regard to certain artists, we can say that they have more or less unconsciously sensed something like this. For example, we understand the recently deceased Gustav Klimt especially well if we take into account such preconditions in his feeling, in his understanding. There will come a time when we will sense the following. Let us say we felt the urge to paint a beautiful woman. Then something like a picture of this beautiful woman would have to form itself in the soul. But someone with subtle feelings will sense that at the very moment in which he has made something out of a beautiful woman, he has, in a spiritual, suprasensory way, led this beautiful woman from life into death. At the very moment we decide to paint a beautiful woman, we have killed her spiritually, we have taken something from her. Otherwise, we would be able to encounter this woman in life and would not develop what can be artistically developed in the painting. We must first artistically have killed this woman, and then we must be capable of harnessing as much humor as is necessary to bring her to life again inwardly. In fact, the naturalist is unable to do this. Naturalistic art grows ill because it lacks humor. That is why it furnishes us with so many corpses, with what in nature is killed by higher life. But it lacks the humor necessary to re-enliven what nature has killed in the first process. Even with a comely woman, in her presence we feel not only as if we had mysteriously killed her, but as if we had first mistreated her and only then killed her that is always a process that moves in one direction this process of killing which is connected with the fact that one must recreate what in a higher life overcomes the will for existence in nature it is always a killing and a bringing back to life through humor that must transpire in artistic creativity and in the appreciation of art. Someone who wants to plant a dashing farm boy up on the alpine pasture is not required to recreate what he sees. Rather he needs to be clear that what he has grasped as an artistic concept kills the dashing farm boy on the alpine pasture or at least rigidifies him and that he must awaken this rigid painting back to life by giving it a gesture that reconnects what has been killed off individually with the rest of nature, thereby giving it a new life. Hodler tried such things. They correspond to the longings of contemporary artists. These two sources of art correspond to the deepest desires, the unconscious desires of the human soul. The fulfillment of what wants to become vision but must not become vision in healthy human nature, will always lead, more or less, to the expressionist art form, though we need not pay too much attention to this catchword. And what is created in order to gather together what we have in some form dissolved into sensory, suprasensory parts, or from which we have killed the immediate sensory life, so as to infuse it with suprasensory life, will become impressionistic art. These two desires of the human soul have always been the sources of art. It is just that through the general evolution of humanity in the immediate past, the first source was pursued expressionistically, the second impressionistically. This will likely develop in larger measure in the future. In the future we will have an artistic feeling when, instead of using the intellectual consciousness, we expand our feelings more and more in these two directions. These two directions, and because of various misunderstandings, this must be emphasized again and again, do not represent something pathological. Pathology will pervade humanity if the movement toward the visionary, within certain limits of elementary natural health, were not satisfied by artistic expressions. Or, if what our unconscious does continually, this dividing of nature into sensory-suprasensory components, were not time and again permeated by a higher life through a truly artistic humor, so that we are able to imitate in our works of art what nature achieves creatively. I thoroughly believe that the artistic process lies deep, very deep in the subconscious, but that under certain circumstances, such strong, such intensive conceptions of the artistic process can be meaningful for life, can affect something in the soul that weak conceptions never can, namely to be able to really cross over into feeling. When these two sources of art announce themselves feelingly in the human soul, then one will certainly see how healthy Goethe's feeling was at a certain moment of life—such things are, of course, always one-sided—when he felt that the purely, genuinely artistic element lies in music. He said that music represents the highest in art. As mentioned, it is one-sided, because any art can achieve these heights, but one always characterizes one-sidedly when one makes characterizations. Music represents the highest in art because it is entirely unable to imitate nature, but instead is in its own element both content and form. But every art will become content and form in its own element if, instead of fabrication or clever ideas, it rests secrets from nature through the discovery of the sensory suprasensory in the matter indicated today. I believe, however, that becoming aware of this sensory, suprasensory in nature, is often a rather secretive process in the soul itself. Goethe himself coined this expression, sensory, suprasensory, and although he calls this sensory, suprasensory a revealed secret, it can only be found when the subconscious forces of the soul are able to immerse themselves entirely in nature. In a manner of speaking, what is a visionary arises in the soul when the suprasensory experience wants to release itself. It rises out of the soul. Whatever can be experienced outwardly as spiritual, outwardly as suprasensory, is experienced by one who can experience spiritually spiritually not by one who has developed vision that, refined and purified by spiritual science, has become imagination, but by one who has developed intuition. By means of vision, one places the inner, to a certain extent, outside, so that the inner becomes an outer in oneself. In intuition, one goes out of oneself, one steps down into the world. But this stepping down remains unreal if one is not capable of releasing that which nature always keeps enchanted and what it always wants to overcome through a higher life. If then one places oneself into this released nature, then one experiences intuition. These intuitions, insofar as they make themselves felt in art, are certainly related to intimate experiences that the soul can have when it becomes one with things outside of itself. That is why Goethe was able to say about his own rather impressionistic art to a friend of his, I want to tell you something that will clarify the relationship people have to what I have created. My work cannot become popular. Only those who have experienced similar things, who have gone through similar circumstances, will, in reality, be able to understand my work at all. Goethe already had this artistic feeling, especially in Part Two of Faust, which is still hardly understood. It appears in poetic form. Goethe already had this artistic feeling, leading him to look for the sensory, suprasensory, by recognizing that part of nature which wants to become a whole beyond itself, which becomes something else through metamorphosis, and then is combined with this other into a product of nature a product that is, however, killed through a higher life. When we penetrate nature in this way, we reach a true reality in a much higher sense than ordinary consciousness believes. Entering into this provides the greatest proof that it is not necessary for art merely to recreate the sensory or suprasensory, merely to express the spiritual, which can err in two directions but rather that art can shape, can express what is sensory in the suprasensory, what is suprasensory in the sensory. Precisely by recognizing the sensory suprasensory, we are, perhaps in the truest sense of the word, naturalists. And in particular we are naturalists as concerns the sensory suprasensory, because we can only grasp it if at the same time we are supernaturalists. That is why I believe that genuine artistic experiences will truly shape themselves in the soul, in such a way that they can also stimulate artistic understanding, artistic enjoyment, so that we will even to some degree be able artistically, within art, to live independently and even to develop. In any case, however, this intensive, deeper consideration of the sensory-suprasensory and its manifestation in art, will help us understand Goethe's deeply felt words, which arise out of a deep understanding of the world. This was my point of departure, and it is with this that I also want to end. These words seek, in a comprehensive way, to highlight our relationship to art as human beings, precisely at the point where we are able to value art deeply in its relationship to the true suprasensory reality and humanity, because it can never exist without the supersensory, because the sensory alone would die if it did not live in the suprasensory, will more and more through its own needs make Goethe's words a reality. Quote, the one to whom nature begins to reveal her open secret feels an irresistible longing for her worthiest interpreter, art. Close quote. The end of Lecture